0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of NASPAGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. Peter Liu. How you doing, Peter? Good. How are you, Jason? I'm good. I'm good. And this is a special episode where we're highlighting a couple of amazing women who are candidates for president-elect for NASPAGAN.
1: Yeah, so we did one last time for uh, Dr. Jennifer Lightdale, Dr. Miguel Saps. We did one for Dr. Jose Garza, Dr. Rohit Kohli. So now the latest presidential election
0: showdown: Dr. Vicky Ying and Dr. Justine Turner. We won't spend too much time introducing these two candidates because we've got interviews with. Well, I have interviews with <laughs> each of these two candidates, and not only will you be able to hear them here if you're. Somebody who prefers taking in information differently, there are going to be candidate videos for president-elect and a few other positions up on the NASPGN website. Right, Peter? Yeah. So when
1: the uh, ballots come out, which which should be very soon, if not already has happened, Margaret will also be sending out a page with pictures of candidates with uh, their CV, like a statement, but also interviews that were conducted by Jason, by me by Kevin Watson, Rudy Sanchez. So a bunch of us kind of pitched in, oh, Ben Gold, Jose Garza. Jose Garza, I think, was absent, but he set up the uh, Mexican counselor interview. And so we got uh, all the candidates from the presidential election, from the council election, from ethics chair, and then from uh, from Mexican counselor. So check those out. As you may have expected, like, these are not serious conversations. We're kind of just asking them casual questions, get to know them a little bit
0: better. Um, so check it out. Stay tuned and and hear from Dr. Justine Turner and Dr. Vicky Ng to their stories, their memories, what NASPGAN means to them, and to learn a little bit more about them. Well, Dr. Vicky Ng, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks, Jason. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Great. And uh, just so that we have a chance to get to know you a little bit better, uh, this might be the toughest question that we'll go through today, but how would you describe yourself in one sentence?
2: This is a tough one. So I would say that I am a collaborative and approachable team player and consensus builder who's really wishing... And willing to trial new territories towards the betterment of the children we care for and the people we serve. In my role as a Canadian and US trained pediatric gastrohepatologist, mother of two, and uh, now speaking in 2022 President elect hopeful.
0: <laughs> I think you nailed it. Not too many commas and codicils and things like that. <laughs> Definitely one sentence. On sentence, I think.
2: But that's, a, that's okay.
0: You stuck the landing. <laughs>
2: Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, we we often ask our, our podcast guests uh, mostly for our own recommendations as well. But um, what is a book, podcast, a movie or a TV show that you've read, listened to or watched recently that you would recommend to other people?
2: I love this question. But I did actually notice that there was one... Um, As a big fan of live musical theatre, I noticed that this wasn't in the question. So, may I be maybe the first to make such a recommendation?
0: Sure. Possibly.
2: So, I actually just saw a great live musical theatre this weekend past. It was called And Juliet. And it is a really high-energy, sort of a provocative uh, live musical that really explores a theme about what-if Juliet didn't die at the end of the Shakespeare classic Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And, you know, I must must say that in in these COVID times, and it's really there, it's just amazing to have the opportunity to really escape and really enjoy and just immerse yourself into, um, you know, a musical experience. But what's really cool. And I think this is the thing about theater is it really kind of provokes thinking. And, you know, my husband had some, I had some conversations afterwards about some of the themes of this alternate Conclusion for Juliet's Second Chance of Life. And I think there were a lot of really um, great 2022 themes, such as um, dealing with adversity, um, relationships, communications that go well and don't go well, equity diversity, inclusion, and representation. And I thought that that was actually really kind of quite relevant um, as I've been sort of pondering and preparing for this podcast and some of the questions, but yet really being able to have this really cool narrative intersect with a really high-end energy, sort of like going to a pop rock concert with uh, confetti and pyrotechnics. And so it was a really cool, and I can't, um, I would really recommend anyone to really go and experience it if they have the opportunity.
0: Oh it sounds like a, sounds like a good one we'll I'll have to check it out if it comes to town here. I always like those um kind of alternate plot line or uh adjacent to a well known story kind of plays like wicked you know it's um yeah, wow. a, a a great way of sort of reimagining or reframing a, a classic so that sounds like a good recommendation. Maybe I can just ask you uh, a little bit about yourself in your career so what is Or are your clinical or research areas of interest and how did you develop them?
2: Well, thanks so much. And so, um, for those who don't know me, um, I am a pediatric gastroenterologist, but with a scholarly interest in uh, liver disease and children in need of when we've had a liver transplant. And this is my phone actually that's just being pinging with people texting me. So, I should silence this because this is often what does happen on a Friday afternoon. There seems to always be issues arising as it pertains to, you know, the acute care, which is actually what really drew me to the interest in the liver and liver transplant. So my clinical interest has always been trying to optimize the outcomes for kids who've had a liver transplant. And in 2022, actually, long-term outcome now is the rule. It's no longer the exception. So really, we're kind of shining our lens beyond sort of um, outcome metrics like survival. And in fact, I think one of the really buzz phrases that I will often say what drives me is actually to say that it's now a matter of making the invisible visible. So really hearing what matters to kids. And so how I really got interested, I think, in the research is I had to really sort of um, say it's the people in the field. I think in, in the world of pediatric GI, there's just so many smart people. And when you come to NASDAQ meetings or you go to the ASLD or TDW, oftentimes you'll hear a lot of sort of gaps in knowledge and opportunities. And I counter that as a academic clinician at SickKids is that I think our patients oftentimes spur our interest because they're the ones who know. And they will often identify questions that we will say, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Let me talk to somebody, do a quick PubMed search. And I think those two sort of the people, really, the smart people who actually articulate some of the gaps, um, the mentors in my field, and really people like John Cabalas in Cincinnati and Dr. Balasteri, Eve Roberts, actually at SickKids, very known liver people, but even people that I just can't imagine just with the generosity of time are people like Phil Sherman, who really directed me after I finished training and said, There's actually a huge opportunity here at SickKids to really come back from Cincinnati where I did my training and really try to merge sort of the surgical expertise that allowed this amazing gift of transplant to happen with a medical arm. And that's really what I think fueled my clinical interest because it was that gap of opportunity. I was steered by the generosity of people looking out, the mentorship and the people um, in NASP again. And uh, here we are now almost 20 years later and it's like a ride of my life. And I think that uh, that's a sort of a theme that I really want to sort of share with colleagues is that you just don't know sometimes where the opportunities can rise, but just listen and and uh, be willing to kind of take a chance at
0: once. And it's clearly worked out really well for you. So uh, it's great that you had that guidance, that mentorship, and, and saw that opportunity.
2: No, I think absolutely. I and mean, I think this theme is going to come up as we talk a little bit more about masculine, because I think, you know, I, I'm in awe now as I sort of move on in my career. And the sort of opportunity and honor running for this position just say that I want to give back. To sort of how I've been a recipient over the course of the journey of my career. So thanks for that.
0: Oh, well, that's, that's a perfect segue because what I wanted to ask you next is what has NASP again meant to you in your career?
2: How much time do you have? <laughs> I, think that, I think that NASP has obviously been a critical juncture in the journey of my career. And I think that along the way, it just felt like NASP again has just always, through I think its knowledge and honestly, as I said, I think NASP is about the people we serve and the people who serve. And I think along the way, there's just always been that right amount of those who listen and those who give guidance, as I was a fellow and the fellows courses um, have been paramount, and I must say, and this probably reveals my age, is the fact that there wasn't even a first-year fellows course when I was a first-year fellow, and there were second and third-year fellow uh, courses, but they were just amazing to allow the networking, and some of my colleagues and friends now were those that I met. So what has been allowed me to really begin a networking at the critical juncture as a junior fellow? And that's just pretty incredible. And then, I mean, what's being meant to me as a junior in a mid-level faculty? I'm just going to say the opportunities. I mean, engagement has to be one of the most paramount strengths ranks of NASP again by giving the opportunities. And one of the things that I've really sort of been I mean, excited to hear is maybe the rejuvenation of the junior faculty course. Because as a junior faculty, I was able to attend, I believe, the only junior faculty course prior to Chris Lee and Bengold and uh, Jennifer, I think, I'm launching it again in December. And it was a pretty um, pivotal time for me, right at the time that I was actually trying to think about going for promotion to associate professor. So really, really incredible. And then I think that it's just the opportunities of being on committees. Mm-hmm. Knowing that as a member of a community, there's opportunities to really network with people that are five, ten years ahead of yourself, myself at the time, and then just having the opportunity to do things as a leader. And I'll just end off by saying now, even as I progress in my journey and being a full professor, I think this just the opportunities to identify a gap. And so COVID, there's just going to be so many examples of the impact of COVID on each of us personally professionally. I'm just really proud to share that, you know, we knew families who had liver disease, and parents of kids who had a liver transplant were just terrified of the impact of COVID. And in the early months, we just didn't know that the power of numbers, especially in pediatrics, we were able to collaborate between the NASPGN Hepatology Committee and the Society of Pediatric Liver Transplant Quality and Improvement Committee. And so Mercedes Martinez, for NASP again, and Mohika akar, a junior faculty, worked together with myself and Steve Labrido on Split. And we brought in a young faculty from Stanford, Noel Eppel, and really, I think the rest is history with publications in JPGN. So that was a long answer, but I just really thought it was important to share with the listeners um, just how valuable NASPGN has been to my career at multiple junctures in this journey of our lives.
0: And looking back at your time in NASPGN, do, do you have a favorite NASPGN annual meeting memory?
2: There are so many, and uh, some perhaps are kind of like a Vegas moment in terms of some of the amazing conversations we had and just, you know, some of the ideas that spurred. But I think probably if I had to pick sort of an element that sort of recurs and maybe be a source of inspiration for those who may be in the more sort of evolving parts of their career, I will have to say that the award ceremony always leaves me just feeling inspired but really proud. I mean, I think Nasticin is like that big extended family, that big (laughs) Greek uh, family, And being Asian, I think that we oftentimes have these big families, but I say it's a lot more amicable and um, it's just, it's just lovely. And I just remember thinking that there's a theme that I always sort of humble myself to say that we just, we think we know things, but I think we often don't know what we don't know. And I always leave those award ceremonies just feeling like I didn't know this element of the awardee's life. And one of the best moments is actually seeing the love and just like the, um, the happiness of the recipient family members that come and it's probably perhaps often the person only mass begin meeting and they're just sort of glimpsing sort of the camaraderie. It just makes me feel really proud. So I just really think that's would be the one I would share with you. So
0: thanks oh. for the opportunity. Uh, no problem. That's 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 a good one. Those those events are really meaningful for for everyone in the audience, and it's, it is always great to see the the people rewarded for their years of clinical and research contributions, but also like you say, to see their families and hear a bit more about their lives. When you think about the future of NASPGAN what what do you want the future of NASPGAN to look like and what should we be working on as a community?
2: It's yeah, a great question. And I just really reflect on how, you know, what a difference two years makes. And I think the one thing I'd have to say is that it's hard to answer any question about the future nowadays without, you know, considering or saying the elephant in the room that, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic has affected each of us in our membership personally and professionally. So I think the future of again, really, um, what I call the post-pandemic again, really ideally would sort of being a glass half full sort of person would really try to benefit from the flexibility and the adaptability of pandemic again. So many things were done. Um, I mean, congratulations for in enduring and having bowel sounds actually perseveres through this. And a number of episodes have been sort of a godsend for me personally, because I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm listening to people and up and coming talent talk about things the movement so that committee works can be done virtually, I think all that was done really quickly because of the pandemic. And I think the days when we used to have committee meetings by just audio phone calls are thing of the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where um, I would sort of say glass half full. There have been some silver clouds from pandemic now we begin. But I think in terms of looking towards the future of NASPIC, and I think we really want to embrace the people. So I will say that we really want to be attentive to the people we serve, the children we care for. We really want to be attentive to a lot of new, um, newer things that we started addressing before. Like there's a lot of disparities in access to care that maybe COVID has really exacerbated. I think the advocacy, you know, and the innovating to advocate. The advocacy committees have done tremendous work up till now in terms of, you know, being a voice for children for really high-risk things like the powerful magnets and for the um, special foods. But I just also think about sort of some of the disparities in access in social pediatrics that we could perhaps do more to make sure, as a future leader, to ensure and enable. That the right peoples can come and i'm not going to pretend that i'm an expert in advocacy but i think my hope would be to try to not shirk from novel opportunities to really better the care of the children and of the people we serve but in terms of the people who serve i think there's a lot of you know potential concern for us to really be attentive to the needs of our members a lot of our members have been definitely frontline and have really perhaps be close to burnout exhaustion maybe there's um, personal um, issues that have actually further accentuated the professional hardships. And I think that looking ahead to the future of and we really want to embrace and hear and engage the members' needs. And that can hopefully come out in additional resources and really not be more resources that mean more work, but make these resources actually useful and really accessible to our members. When I also talk about, you know, ensuring that we innovate to reach out to members, I also think of the fellows. The fellows are our future. They are our future leaders. They are the people that are going to continue the next 50 years of NASP again. And when I really think about the graduating classes that have come out as a hybrid model of doing research or doing a lot of their education locally, Through a hybrid or virtual model, I think we just really want to be attentive to that cohort and just make sure that they, perhaps through earlier junior faculty courses, that we're thinking of starting to be an enduring sort of uh, opportunity for them to feel armed, cared for, and have the same opportunities and any of the limitations could be identified. So those are just a few key things that I think when I just think about what is NASP again and the foundation and the bones are just tremendous. Like I'm looking forward to celebrating 50 years together when we get together in Florida. And I think it's just an opportunity to really build and really acknowledge the fact that the past couple of years have been challenging and build from strength to strength, but really be attentive to some of the unique needs brought on by the pandemic.
0: Okay. Thanks for that. I mean, I, I think those are great answers to really focus on the supports for all the people, both the people that Aspigan serves and, and the people within Aspigan. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Our time's almost over, but as we're wrapping up, I, I had one last question and that is to ask you, what do you think the best advice that you've received so far in your career? And, and do you have any advice for people listening or watching?
2: Yeah, this is actually a tough one because I kind of feel very fortunate that there have been a lot of pearls that have come along this journey that have been perhaps just right. And I think the advice would sort of be directed to different people at different journey points in their careers as pediatric gastroenterologists, but maybe one that could kind of encompass things. It would be to say to be patient and be patient with yourself. And it seems almost like that, hopefully, not try to say that, you know, this time as we're recovering from all the challenges. I feel a lot of gratitude when I think about that, because as an impatient person, when I was a fellow or as a junior faculty, one always wants to do more. And also I think there's a tendency and the analogy that best fits with being patient is our career is like a marathon. It's not so much like a hundred meter sprint. And I must say chronologically, age wise at the beginning, sometimes it seems like we can rejuvenate and we can do a lot of back to back 100 meter sprints. But I would actually say that with the benefit of hindsight and with aging bodies, I think that because of NASP again, and because of the multiple opportunities that have been, and I would really hope to continue to enable and strive to continue to have available, there will be times. And sometimes we talk about not saying no, but sometimes saying no is the right thing if you actually listen to yourself. Because ultimately, if our goal and each one of us as members of NASP is to be the voice for children with gastrointestinal, liver, pancreas, transplant um, conditions, we really want to be taking care of ourselves. And so just be patient and I want to end off with last bit to say that for all of our younger listeners out there, please don't hesitate to reach out to those who may be 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead of you and really ask the questions, what can Aspikin do for me? And I myself would be really pleased uh, to answer that. So two bits of advice, Jason. Um, I that was
0: okay. Yeah, I think those are those are great pieces of advice for sure. Vicki, again, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me. And I mean, I just say to everyone, just thanks for the opportunity to listen. And I just really may I say this on behalf of NASP, mm-hmm. and I just really hope everyone will come out and vote because ultimately, I do believe that again mm-hmm. will win this year. I think that Dr. Charney and myself, yeah, you're going to likely have a Canadian female president, one way or the other, and that will be a win for all. And thanks again, Jason, as my fellow Canadian uh, to do this. I think, that we really hopefully can demonstrate that we're not living in igloos up here because it's beautiful weather where i am how is it in edmonton same same
0: all right thanks so
2: much
0: jason thank you so dr justine turner thank you so much for joining me today
3: thank you for having me
0: So we're going to start with what might be the toughest question, something that we ask all our podcast guests. Um, How would you describe yourself in one sentence?
3: Okay. So I am passionate. I'm creative. I'm hardworking and I'm strong-willed, as you know, and uh, I'm absolutely very blessed with my family, my friends, and my career.
0: That's fantastic. And I love that that is different from a lot of our uh, podcast answers where the answer is all about who you are in your job. Uh, I love that that was about you and how you see yourself yeah. uh,
3: well I can say I could say one more thing I could uh, you know I think I one of the things I am blessed with is that my friends, are my clinical partners and my research partner. So it makes it very easy to, you know, to be very happy with your career when the people you work with are people you love to be with. Yeah.
0: it's nice. Nice to hear. And I completely agree in a completely unbiased way.
3: Yeah. I suppose the other thing I should say is that I'm an Australian-Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody can hear that, right? You can all hear that?
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And our, our neighbours to the south will clearly pick up that that's not a strictly speaking Canadian accent. <laughs> yeah um so just to get to know you a little bit more uh throughout the pandemic we've been asking our podcast guests this what is a book a podcast a movie or a tv show that you've recently read listened to or watched that you would recommend to other people
3: yeah well i'm going to live dangerously and say a book and and i'm living dangerously saying that to you because you read a lot of uh very intellectual books and as you know jason I read young adult fiction, (laughs) but no, I I actually have a book which is a little bit more highbrow than my usual fantasy reading. I recently read a book that's been sitting in my Kobo for ages, and I just kept putting it to the bottom and piling in the young adult fiction, but it's a book called Intelligent Kindness. It was recommended to me quite a while ago, and it's a real book for the moment um, with the pandemic and for you and me working in Alberta Health Services. It's about the national health system. And about how when you live in systems that are big and very bureaucratic and very determined to make everyone efficient and cost effective, that they often lose sight of what really is the basis of what we do and what actually is the most important thing to our patients. And that's, you know, compassionate care, right? Um, and it has loads of examples of where if you go back to that fundamental, you can make a huge difference to the patients, but also to the system, you can make the system better. So, I, yeah, I, I was really touched when I read it and I've been recommending it to other people and saying, you know, this is where we got, we got to get back to this fundamental, right? Uh, it's not always about numbers or performance, you know, that uh, the immeasurable things make the biggest difference.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds like a great recommendation and uh, I'm going to add it to my list when we're done. <laughs> Um, maybe I could just ask, you know, if you could talk a little bit about what are your clinical or research areas of interest and and how did you Mm. develop those?
3: Okay. Well, my biggest passion, you know, is research and nutrition, right? And I think for me, everything that I have come to in my career came from great mentors, right? So when I was in Perth, Western Australia, um, as a pediatric, you know, resident registrar there. Um, I was very lucky to do um, gastroenterology with David Forbes and Dick Hill, and they were great people. And I think they sort of exemplify what many pediatric gastroenterologists are like in terms of being, you know, fun-loving, caring people who really want to share their knowledge. But David Forbes in particular is one of those people that like, he remembers medical students that he trained eight years ago, 10 years ago. Like he He's just a wonderful person, and he was very passionate about nutrition, and that's kind of what got me into nutrition. Um, and I actually worked with him at an eating disorders clinic, which is a very unusual kind of background for a gastroenterologist, but very relevant if you want to be a nutrition specialist. Sure. And doing that, I really got passionate about you know nutritional physiology, which you know it underlies everything we do. It doesn't matter what you do in GI. So I got very passionate about that. And then he recommended I go to Canada to do my fellowship and he had done his in Calgary. And I kind of looked around and I found this person called Paul Pencharts. And I was like, I love this person's papers and the research that he does. And that's it. I'm going there. And I did not apply anybody else. So now in retrospect, I was Clearly, very arrogant (laughs) because how did I manage to fall on my feet and end up at Sick Kids doing a fellowship with, you know, with Paul Pencharts? And he took over as my uh, mentor. And he is also the most amazing mentor, like, you know, a scientist that can just teach you so much, but allows you to grow yourself. Um, Somebody who totally cares about your career. Like when I was with him, I had a four month old baby and a husband who wasn't really keen on canada and i had to finish my phd and i was really struggling and he took it upon himself to read my phd thesis chapters on a regular basis even though it had nothing to do with him it was of no benefit for him you know and so again like i was lucky to to be able to continue to learn about nutrition and to love everything he taught me and to have just a wonderful mentor who you know, made me want to continue to be an academic and be like him. And then, of course, I didn't get a job back in Australia, which was a very bad thing for my husband. And uh, probably the worst time of my life was getting the, you know, the call in the middle of the night to say, sorry, you didn't get the job. But this job came up in Edmonton. And Paul said to me, well, you know, if you're going to go to Edmonton, I have a research partner there and we do this research with piglets because I was doing clinical research with him. And I know this surgeon, Paul Wales, who, who wants to do translational research in short gut and intestinal failure. And why don't you think about that as an opportunity? And the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great. A legend was born.
3: Oh, I don't know about that. But, you know, I, I am also very lucky, you know, working with Paul. We have a great relationship my children have grown up with him living in our loft when he comes monthly to do the piglet surgeries and, you know, they just think he's a part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he is a part of the family and it's been a great working relationship. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. Branching out from your your clinical and research interests, yeah. maybe we can ask you a little bit with your, about your relationship with NASPEGAN. So what has NASPEGAN meant to you in your career?
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, it's exactly the same thing. I think the best professional societies are great mentors, right? That's what they do for us, right? They provide us with opportunities. They provide us with career guidance. Um, and they support us, right, in our, in our career development, in our clinical roles, in our research and academic roles. And you think about all the things that NASPagan does, like, look at bow sounds, um, look at the you know Wednesday webinars which helps me with my CME and helps keep me up to date and uh, the research grant opportunities that we have through NASPGAN. And you know for me personally, one of the big highlights for me is NTU. Um, I get every year to meet with my nutrition heroes, right? like Praveen gode and Maria Mascaranis and Anne Scheiman and uh, more. Um, and the dietitians who I learned so much from. So, you know, that's a huge uplift for me every year. I had the Terry Lee education grant that I got from NASPagan that helped me make videos about really the burden of enteral nutrition support made by families, you know, who are living it uh, for other families. And, you know, I'm really proud of that. And uh, my trainees get heaps of opportunities to go to NASPagan to the annual meeting and to present their research. And if it wasn't for began, I wouldn't have got to be an associate editor on JPGN. And these are all huge career highlights for me. So, yeah, began is one of my best mentors as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great to hear. Do you have any favorite NASBIGAN annual meeting stories or memories?
3: Oh, yeah, you're in this one. <laughs> so I'm sure you remember when we went to the Diplomat Hotel in 2018. And you went, Hien went, oh, sorry for everyone, here. Hien Huan and uh, Matt Carroll and A-Town Wine, all, of course, NASBGAM members and in my division. And my husband went, Salim went, which is a very unusual thing because he tries to stay away from uh, conferences. Like It's not his thing, but it was on the beach. So he agreed to come and we just had the most fantastic time. I think you rented a um, VRBO or a Airbnb and we had like pre-dinner drinks at your place. And then we all went out to dinner on the, on the waterfront and remember Phil Sherman came Mm -hmm. and it was just a really fun, loving, friendly dinner was like not, you know, talking shop. It was just, uh, enjoying ourselves as, uh, comrades and, uh, yeah, I don't remember any of the sides of the meeting, but I'm sure it was great. (laughs) But It was, you know, that those memories for me is having my husband there with my colleagues and friends and he had a great time yeah it was good
0: that, yeah. that was a good night absolutely yeah. <laughs> um what do you think what do you want the future of nas began to look like mm-hmm. what what should we, we be working on as a community
3: yeah so first and foremost we have a great community right so we got to keep that going volunteer organizations depend on their volunteers right and nas began is so lucky to have so many wonderful people who want to be on sigs and want to be on committees and have great ideas and participate at the drop of a hat and we all get stuff back from that we put in but you really want to keep that momentum going you really want to keep those volunteers engaged and making us the you know the great society that it is Um, but i do have a couple of things that are really important to me that i would like to see developed for naspagan i think coming out of the pandemic, if I'm allowed to say that, that we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, This has been a really tough two years for everyone, um, for everyone's mental health, right, that's in our society, but particularly for our patients. And I I really worry, and I know we've talked about this before in our division, but I really worry that there's going to be a tsunami of functional GI disorders. And for me, you know, I do a lot of clinically, I do a lot of celiac disease. I've never seen as many patients with really difficult functional GI symptoms, incidentally you know, diagnosed with celiac disease. And I've been doing this for a long time. So I know that this is different. This feels different. And I think one of the things that I find clinically the most challenging is when I have patients and I, I really feel I'm I'm not able to offer you what you need or you know I can make a diagnosis and I can do a scope but that's not what you need right and how do I give you what you need and get you what you need in these times when mental health services are always being shut down and you know it's like this is not this is not the way we need to be going so I think advocating to improve mental health access Advocating and making maybe helping build something with all the great GI psychologists who are out there that work with a lot of our colleagues that are lucky to have those resources that we don't have in Edmonton, right? Working with them to create more resources for people to get us through this tsunami because it's coming, it's already here, but it's we're only at the bottom of the wave, right? It's going to crest. So, I think that's a really big priority for me is mental health and our own mental health is important. So, Annual meeting, everyone, you know, get getting to the annual meeting and building some of those good memories in person again is really important. Um, and then the other one for me, I am very passionate about our journal. And I think that we can build some resources or we can create some resources to build really great evidence-based clinical practice guidelines that are regularly updated. So we can create a process for that that we don't quite have in place now. We have great clinical practice guidelines, but we don't really have a process the way, for example, other societies I'm a part of, like CAG and Aspen have created. And I think we can do that. And I think we'll reap the benefits and our journal will reap the benefits and its impact factor will really reflect the impact that it has. You know, as you know, I do the intestinal failure sort of translational basic research, and I'm always amazed and impressed by the number of JPGN citations I put in to my grants and things. And, you know, our impact factor should climb and it is climbing under, you know, Mel Hyman and now Sandeep's guidance, but it should climb even more because we are an incredibly impactful pediatric society and pediatric GIs in everything. And our our journal can just, you know, continue to reflect that. So that's one of my other priorities I'd like to work on.
0: I think those are, are great priorities to to shoot for over the near term in our society. That sounds uh mm-hmm. like really a good plan. One last question bef- before I let you go what What's the best advice that you've received in your career so far mm-hmm. and and what advice might you have for people listening?
3: Yeah, this this is not, it's not necessarily advice, but it's kind of a mantra that I hear in my head. And it's come up for me at different points in my career. So when I was, you know, very junior, starting my PhD at UWA in the Department of Pediatrics there, which was very small, Prue Manners was one of the, I think she was at that time, the only female professor in the department. And she said to me and one of the other students, you know, it's okay to do what you need to do, and if you need to take a break, it's okay to do that. She said, "Like you know, I took a break for seven years when my kids were young, and I still came back and got an academic position, and I'm here in the department. And you can make things happen, right? And it, but it's okay to take the time you need. And then I was in the NASPAGAN, I think it was the third year's fellow course. I kind of think I skipped a year, right? Because I was only two year fellow at SickKids, but I went to the third year fellow course. And one of the breakout groups was with B. Lee." And he was talking about his career and how he'd had this big change in direction in his career and how this was not where where he expected to go. You know, functional and cyclical vomiting, and it was not what he expected for his career at all. But how great it was that it worked out that way. And I remember, for me, you know, when I got that phone call in the middle of the night that I didn't get the job in Perth, and so the next day or two, I'm in Paul Panchas's office crying, as you do, and uh, him saying to me, you know. When one door closes, another door opens. And that's the mantra I hear in my head all the time. And I think it reflects those things, right? That you can take different pathways and you can go through different doorways, but they're always there. We're so lucky in our career to have those opportunities. And people need to hear that, I think, at times, right, that you can be hugely invested in something and it doesn't go the way you expect, but you'd be surprised how good the next opportunity through the next door or around the corner is going to be for you. And and I hear that mantra a lot, and um, I hear I hear it in Paul Penchart's voice, of course.
0: <laughs> I think that's a really important message and one that I'm sure all of us could use hearing from time to time in our own heads. So thanks for sharing that. And thanks again, Justine, for taking the time to sit down with me and, and have a chat through uh, your advice and your history and, and what NASPGEN means to you.
3: You're very welcome. I mean, I, I have to be very thankful to have this opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity. I'm so humbled to, to be here uh, applying to be president-elect. And uh, thanks. thank you for the nomination committee for considering me.
0: All yeah. right. And, and see you in the fall at NASPGEN.
3: Yes, absolutely, everyone. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye. (laughs) Bye. So hopefully uh, our listeners really enjoyed getting to know Dr. Justine Turner and Dr. uh, Vicky Ng a little bit more. I'm going to put out a personal plug and just say how amazing it is that we have not only two women running for NASPGN president this year, but two Canadian women. So, uh, you know, go Canada. So, um, but everyone, please, you know, not just for the presidents, but also for councillors and ethics chair, um, get out and vote. When you get your ballot, please take uh, some time, review the candidates and, and vote because these are the people that are representing you.
1: Is this going to be the first Canadian president?
0: No, no, it won't be. Phil Sherman okay. was the last canadian president and uh yeah so so it it has been some time yeah yeah
1: well so to the listeners thanks for joining and don't forget to check out all the other interviews
0: all the other videos read about the candidates and vote and hopefully we'll see lots of you at naspn in orlando florida in october yes